Good morning, everybody. Welcome um, to PRIO, to the PRIO Middle East Center, and to uh, this seminar, which has been uh, very long in the making. We've been planning this for, uh, I guess, Basel, uh, about a year now, and then there have been COVID interruptions, but... Uh, by sort of a strike of luck, it does also mean that this is a particularly opportune time to examine the political situation in uh, Lebanon, which is what we have on the agenda for today. So you see what the content of uh, the talk that will follow is on the screen here, what Lebanon after the collapse, and it still says the collapse, not after the elections, because the elections haven't cancelled out the collapse. The collapse still needs to be dealt with, and it's not clear how that's going to happen, as we will her hear more about in a minute from somebody who knows a lot more about Lebanon than I do. I happened to be in Lebanon my last trip actually on the I left on the 18th of October two and a half years ago <laughs> so uh, got to see the uh, the heat of the uh, erupting protests in uh, in October 2019 and I hope soon to be able to uh, go back although I do understand it's a it's a different country. The structure of this is that I'll, uh, in uh, a few seconds, be handing over the podium to uh, Basil Salouh. Uh, Basil Salouh is an associate professor at the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies. He's uh, a leading uh, scholar on uh, the political economy, politics in Lebanon. Uh, spends also quite a bit of his time there still, after having... Uh, relocated work-wise to, uh, to Doha, where he is at the Doha, Gra Doha Institute of Graduate Studies. Um, we'll also have a comment by Rania Maktabi, who is an associate professor at uh, University College uh, Østfold here in uh, Norway, and also follows uh, events in uh, Lebanon quite um, closely through her own research. The um, structure is we'll have the talk, as I said, we'll then have a um, short comment, we'll have a little exchange in the panel, and we'll then open up for Q&A. So um, sharpen your questions uh, already now. I should also forewarn you that we intend to record this and make it available as a podcast in the aftermath. So uh, if you have particularly sensitive questions that you want to ask, you shouldn't expect an answer, and you may even want to consider whether you should ask those questions at the margins after the uh, event rather than in the, um, in the public. The Prio Middle East Center, which I head, is a um, project that aims to stimulate debate, produce relevant insight on uh, events in the Middle East. Now, we don't claim to have expertise on everything Middle East related, but we try to uh, play on our strengths and we follow the situation. And uh, this is an example of that, today's seminar. The um, center is funded by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs here in Norway uh, through a grant channeled through the uh, Norwegian Research Council. And one of the things we do is to host breakfast seminars such as this, compact one-hour events early in the morning, serving breakfast so that people can uh, get some intellectual stimulation and grab uh, something to eat on their uh, way to work. So again, a very warm welcome to all, and a particularly warm welcome to Basel. We are very glad to have been able to finally bring you here. The stage is yours. Please. Thank you so much, uh, Christian, and uh, thank you to the PRIO for the kind invitation. Uh, what I'll try to do is uh, kind of set up the uh, stage for uh, the reasons of the collapse, uh, so some background to why the collapse happened, when it happened, how it has been managed or mismanaged so far, and say a couple of things about uh, the way forward. And hopefully, with Rania's help and with your questions, we can try to unpack uh, some issues that I will not discuss in my talk, but you might be interested in. Uh, I think the first thing to, 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 to say at, at, uh, at this moment is that what we are witnessing and what we have been witnessing for two years and a half now is really the complete collapse and the end of the post-war political order in Lebanon, uh, political economic uh, order. A, a, 
a post-war order that was assembled uh, beginning in 1989, but more formally in 1990 through the Taif uh, Accord. The, the paradox about the Taif Agreement that technically ended the war is that it was supposed to be a, a much better consociational agreement than that of 1943 in the sense that a big part of the war was fought to rebalance the sectarian balance of power between the different religious groups. And indeed, the Ta'if agreement uh, does that. It shifts a lot of the prerogatives, the powers of the Maronite president in Lebanon to cabinet in its collective capacity. And, it's, and it applies a 50-50, an equal ratio of positions in the pub, public uh, sector among Muslim and Christians. So the Taif Accord was meant to be an accord that, first of all, ends the war and redistributes the uh, balance of political power and the balance of positions in the government in a, in a more in a fairer way than the 1943 uh, National Pact did. In fact, it does that, but the paradox is that by doing so, it opens the way for the complete capture of the Lebanese state by the post-war sectarian elite, most of whom come from a militia background. That is, warlords who decide to recycle themselves as uh, statesmen. And so the paradox of consociationalism in Lebanon, if compared to other countries that have adopted consociationalism, is, and this is research that I'm doing uh, independently, is that the, the weakness of the Lebanese state meant that the end of the war, a new consociational agreement, opens the way for the post-war elite to completely capture the state and to, to, to put the political economy of the state at the service of capital accumulation, wealth accumulation for their own means. And I think 30 years on, we are now witnessing the results of this process. So the, the consociational system in many ways then exposes the state for complete capture. And this is one of the arguments that I make about the state in Lebanon is that in Lebanon there is no difference between the public and the private, the formal and the informal. It's very difficult to uh, draw a line between where the state ends and society ends. And my argument is that this is because of the way the consociational system in Lebanon works and the way those who were fighting for the state enter into the state. They use the political economy of the state to create a new financial, a new sociological post-war order. One in which uh, uh, the state and the political economy of the state uh, plays an instrumental role in creating wealth for the elite, but also uh, creates the kind of structure through cartels, through monopolies, uh, to uh, serve the different constituencies of the political establishment. And in fact, I think we can see how this, what I'm calling the post-war order, was created uh, in the last 30 years simply by looking at uh, government expenditures from 1993 till 2017. These numbers, by the way, were not easy to collect. Uh, they are the result mainly of the heroic work of some people and the Minister of Finance who decided that they want to uh, establish the accounts, the real accounts of government spending from 1993 till 2017. We got them only recently. And if you look at this table, it tells us how the political order was created and the different aspects of it. I'm going to unpack them later. Uh, one thing to notice is the money spent on interest on debt and debt repayments around $72 billion, around 37% of government spending, the highest uh, share of government spending in the post-war order. So this is interest paid on the government debt, most of which was created to enrich the 
overlapping political, economic, financial elite in the country. Debt in Lebanon in the post-war period is the oil of the country, the real rent of the country. Uh, wealth was created through the creation and the management of, of debt. And as we can see, a big chunk of government spending goes simply to finance the interest on, on this debt, which was taken mostly through uh, the financial institutions, the, the big banks and the countries. The second important component to note here is uh, the $63 billion spent on salaries, wages, pensions, compensations for the public sector, uh, 32.4%. And this is, as I will describe a bit later, this is really important about how the political elite that comes to power after the end of the war, former warlords, militia leaders, how they create a completely new sociology in Lebanon. They expand the, the middle class to encompass everyone from a teacher in a public uh, school to a medical doctor. And a big chunk of the government finances were, were spent financing this oversized public sector. EDL transfers are transfers from the government to the electricity company, uh, Electricité du Liban, the, the, the Lebanese uh, uh, electricity company, which is probably the only case of a monopoly that loses money. And I think looking at EDL gives us a, an idea of how the formal and the informal worked in Lebanon. So by the late 1990s, the, the Lebanese government, Rafiq Hariri government and company, realized that there is a cash problem in, in the country in terms of foreign reserves. So they decide to start reducing electricity supply because in Lebanon, electricity is generated by fuel. And so they start reducing payments to import fuel because they don't want to pay hard currency. This creates an electricity shortage in Lebanon, filled by the informal sector of generators. Now, in this country, you probably don't understand what I'm talking about because you simply don't have this problem. Uh, but this is, this is a, EDL is a case of how the private and the public come together in Lebanon in the post-war period, the formal and, and the informal. The government doesn't want to spend the hard currency it has to supply electricity for 24 hours a day. So it starts reducing the electric supply. Somebody has to fill the gap. And the gap was filled by owners of generators in the informal sector. And a lot of these generators, uh, owners of the generators that supply electricity, are partisans of the sectarian political parties, which are really former militias in the country. And so you see how the wealth is being distributed between the private sector and the public sector, between the formal and the informal sector. The last uh, uh, number I would like you to pay attention to is capital expenses, which is really government uh, investment, real investments, 15.2 billion, 7.8 percent of total spending. And, and th this line alone, I think, demystifies the myth in Lebanon that, the, that government expenditures were paid for rebuilding and reconstruction. In fact, it's a very small number compared to the money that was spent financing the debt and spent on the public sector. In many ways, the post-war order in Lebanon was built along this philosophy that Rafiq Hariri uh, uh, voiced in this very short sentence, we bought civil peace by debt. In other words, Hariri was saying that to convince the warlords and the militia leaders to stop the fighting, you had to allow them to make much more money in the post-war period than they were making during the war itself. In fact, what this means is the capitalization of the post-war Elite. Of course, what is unsaid in the sentence is that uh, rich businessmen like Hariri himself also were able to amass incredible wealth in the post-war period through the control of the state's 
fiscal and monetary policies. And I want to go through three steps that I think will help us understand how this post-war order was uh, created. So the first one is the capitalization of the post-war political economic elite through interest payments and contracts. A rentier capitalist uh, system was created in post-war Lebanon, whereby the political economy of the state was placed at the service of capital accumulation. And so whether it was contracts for uh, reconstruction, rebuilding, they were all given along political uh, political uh, lines. At one point, as the, the debt started increasing and the government has to finance the debt, the banks had to step in and start and, and, and uh, borrow the uh, the government starts borrowing from the from the banks. And we can see that uh, net bank profits increased from 63 million in 1993. This is just after the end of the war to 2 billion in 2018, with an accumulated total of bank profits around 22 billion by the end of 2018. So the big banks, around 14 banks in Lebanon control 85% of the market, were able to uh, gather most of the, uh, the money created from the uh, from the interest, uh, the government interest. And this is one of the reasons why there is today so much anger at the banks in Lebanon. What also happened in the post-war period is a really incredible concentration of wealth in the top 1%. So the wealthiest 10% of the population hold almost 70% of total personal wealth. And again, this was done through a number of ways, through access to government contracts, through high interest rates in the banks, through treasury bills that at one point were giving 40% interest on on the Lebanese bond. So the first step then is the literally creating a capitalist class, but a rentier capitalist class, from the post-war political elite. Uh, and this gives you an idea of how the debt developed over time. Uh, the, 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 the government debt. So until 2005, it was around 35 billion. Between 2005 and 2010, it grows by another 10 billion. This is the period after the Syrian withdrawal from Lebanon. And then between 2010 and 2019, it grows by another $45 billion. Most of it is interest on the original debt. So this is not money spent in the real economy. This is simply money spent to finance a ballooning government debt. By the way, a debt that by the late 2000, by, by, by the late 90s, early 2000, when Emil Lahoud came to power, uh, General Emil Lahoud, who became president, came to power, it was be- becoming obvious that we are dealing with a monster that we cannot uh, control anymore. But nobody wanted to take uh, difficult decisions to bring it under control. The second step is what I've called the creation of a whole new post-war sociology. <clears throat> and what I mean there is how the political elite, <clears throat> the sectarian elite, really uses the fiscal policies of the state to create a new middle class, a kind of a clientelistic constituency and thus keep it under their control along sectarian lines. So the the public sector balloons from around 77,000 to somewhere close to 325 employees, between employees and retirees, out of which 120,000 are in the security and military personnel and 40,000 are employees in the public educational system. Both the security institutions and the public education and, and the public educational systems are really the main clientelistic engines for the uh, sectarian elite, the, the post-war sectarian elite. So you see in Lebanon a very high rate of schools to students, teachers to students, but that's not because the public sector is fantastic when it comes to the quality of the education, but it's simply a way for the sectarian political elite to uh, employ their 
partisans in, in, in the public sector. Uh, this whole new sociology was also anchored on a peg, the decision that was taken as early as 1993, but more formally so in 1997, to peg the Lebanese pound to the dollar. So the dollar becomes 1,500 Lebanese pounds, no matter what, despite uh, the unproductive nature of the uh, Lebanese economy. And what this does is it really creates a, 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 a lifestyle of consumerism that cannot be financed by the real economy, by the productive nature of the economy. It is actually financed by capital inflows coming from outside Lebanon, money coming from outside of Lebanon, mainly from the Lebanese diaspora. And so of a total of $280 billion cumulative capital inflows from January 1993 until 2018, this is the amount of money that came into the country, real dollars. Today in Lebanon, they call it fresh dollars, huh? real dollars. Out of 280, this is really coming mainly from the diaspora population, 261 or 91% were spent to finance the country's trade deficit. In other words, the imbalance between imports and exports. The import bill alone was $317 billion compared to only uh, uh, $55 billion in exports. Now, the mismatch has to be managed, and it was managed by the money coming from outside the country. So the philosophy in the post-war period was as long as the amount of dollars coming into the country is bigger than the amount of money leaving the country, we're fine. A number of economists warned as early as the late 90s that this policy of pegging the dollar, the Lebanese pound to the dollar and stabilizing it at 1,500 is wrong. Whenever they would say something like this, the official line was that, why is it wrong? As long as more money is coming into the country than leaving, we can finance our trade deficit. We can finance our balance of payments deficit. The third uh, step in the, in the creation of this post-war order is to destroy those avenues of opposition, of socioeconomic opposition in any society, and namely I'm talking about syndicates and labor unions. In fact, there was a concerted effort in the post-war period to, uh, to colonize from within the labor movements, the labor unions, and to domesticate them and to make them into a part of the uh, post-war order crea created by the sectarian elite. And so those labor movements, they, those labor organizations that even during the height of the war played a role in organizing people al along socioeconomic lines, these were all occupied from within, controlled, whereas those parts of civil society that, that work to reproduce sectarianism, scouts, media, parties, what have you, these were allowed to function un unhindered. So for the post-war political economy to continue as, uh, uh, to, to function smoothly uh, required ever-increasing capital inflows, which was the case up until 2011. There were early signs of the structural crisis of the post-war political economy as early as the late 1990s, when it was obvious that this fantasy of a non-productive rentier economy can go on forever. But of course, Lebanon at the time was considered to be too important geopolitically. First, there was the argument about the peace process. Then there were these geopolitical arrangements uh, along, the side of the nine, uh, along the side of the 2003 Iraqi uh, US invasion of Iraq. So every time there was a hiccup in the system, a donor conference would be organized and Lebanon would be able to uh, 
uh, escape a, 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 a collapse. Uh, in fact, between 2006 and 2010, the cumulative surplus was something like $19.5 billion. And, and, you know, the Lebanese felt that they were rich. By 2011, the moment the war starts in Syria, the balance of trade turns negative. The amount of money coming into the system is much less than the amount of money going out. Reaching a cumulative deficit of 18.5 billion by the end of 2019. And with that begins the twin crisis of, of the Lebanese system. So this is all background, if you like, to where we are now. And I think what the 17 October protest embody physically, really, is the end of two things. The end of the political economy of the post-war period, this fantasy of an economic financial system that can be reproduced and financed by capital inflows from outside, but also the end of a political system, the Ta'if agreement, if you like, that was uh, negotiated at a certain uh, geopolitical moment in the region. So the first, then, the, the, the first crisis is the end of the post-war political economy. What we've been witnessing in the last two years and a half is an overlapping fiscal, financial, socioeconomic, and monetary crisis. The Lebanese pound has collapsed. The purchasing power of probably 90% of Lebanese has evaporated. Uh, inflation, cumulative uh, uh, Inflation is around 800,000, uh, sorry, 800%. So you can imagine that all these people who work in the public sector and who uh, get salaries in Lebanese pounds, their, their salaries now mean nothing. Uh, or those who work in the military, their salaries, the purchasing power of their military has just uh, evaporated. The World Bank has called what has happened in the past two years and a half as the Great Depression. I like to call it the great destruction in the sense that in reaction to the fiscal, financial, monetary collapse that has happened after 2019, the political, economic, and the financial elite has decided to actually manage the complete destruction and the complete collapse of society rather than undertake the kind of fiscal and monetary policies that one usually sees in a country that suffers from a, a, a financial uh, crisis or a currency crisis and so on. And I think they've done that because they know very well that any policy that can actually address the situation will touch their own very personal material interests. As a result of this policy of doing nothing for two years and a half, we are witnessing in Lebanon a whole sociology influx, a country going through massive structural transformations in front of our eyes. And Lebanon today is really a political sociologist's dream come true because you can see these great structural transformations happening in front of you. So, for example... Uh, we now, the World Bank now estimates that remittances coming into Lebanon, that is money spent by people like myself and other Lebanese who live outside, give, sending money to help their parents survive in Lebanon, is around $6.6 .6 billion. This is through official channels. I'm putting seven because I know very, most Lebanese also take money through, you know, they carry money, money with them, uh, cash with them. So let's say $7 billion. In an economy that is estimated today by the World Bank at $21 billion, or in a GDP of $21 billion. So you have a third of the economy that rests on remittances sent by Lebanese from outside the country. Around 200,000, this is an estimate number, have left the country since 2020, me included. Uh, I left in September because I realized that uh, I have been theorizing this crisis for so long, it's now 
time to do something about it and get out uh, uh, from the country. And what, 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 we, what we have are these kind of binaries in the country, the binary between people who cannot leave for many reasons, often it's personal reasons, not just professional reasons, and those who have left, and so now they have access to uh, uh, dollar uh, salaries. We have a binary between those who live in the country and have some kind of access to, we call them fresh dollars, which means dollars, really, through formal or informal measures or the formal or informal economy, and those who don't. And, so, and if you don't have access to uh, dollars, then your whatever you make in Lebanese pounds doesn't really, uh, has no purchasing power. And there's another layer, which is the binary between the Lebanese and the non-Lebanese living in the countries. Of course, the, 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 those Palestinian refugees, Syrian refugees, and so on, who are sort of left on their uh, own. Sometimes the, the international community still has you know uh, uh, has its own programs with them, but that also is creating friction between poor Lebanese and these refugee populations because the poor Lebanese are jealous that these refugee populations now have access to help through U.S. dollars. So I call it a whole sociology is in flux because the structural transformations that are going on today as a result of the. Uh, you know the the brain drain leaving the country the, the 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 differences between those who have access to some kind of foreign currency and those we will only understand them in in a couple of decades uh, ahead now the way the the last two years and a half were managed by the political elite is to outsource the problem to the central bank to BDL Banque du Liban and what has happened is that the central bank spent through different policies and subsidies and what have you around $21 billion of what in Lebanon they call required reserves at the central bank, but they are really people's money taken from the banks and placed in the central bank as required reserve. $21 billion that were spent in the last two years and a half, I, I think, and I think a lot of other people would agree with me, to simply normalize the crisis, to uh, neutralize the political consequences of the protests that exploded in October 2019. And ironically, a lot of this money did not benefit the average Lebanese, is actually financed uh, the cartels that are importing fuel and medical products and so on. They are the ones who made enormous profits. And also a lot of it was uh, smuggled through the borders to Syria. In other words, the central bank finances the import of medications at a, at, at a fixed rate for the Lebanese pound to the dollar. But a lot of this these medications, once they make their way to Lebanon, are sold at, exp at expensive prices or smuggled out uh, of the border. Uh, the other crisis uh, that has yet to be resolved is who will pay for the $72 billion in financial losses in the banking sector. This is the last number uh, generated by the, the government. They estimate that there is a hole in the banking sector of around $72 billion, which if we go back to this table, by the way, looks eerily <laughs> as much as the interest that has been paid on debt. And so the argument now is who will pay the price of this big hole? Uh, it is estimated that in the central bank, the hole is around $63 billion. So this is money taken by the central bank from the banking sector and spent to finance imports, to maintain the peg on the currency, the currency peg up until 2019, and to finance uh, uh, other uh, uh, transactions in the country, plus 
9 billion, which is today estimated the number given for the equity of the banks in, in, in the country. Uh, the, the main debate in Lebanon today is who will pay uh, for this uh, hole in the banking, in the financial sector. By the way, Lebanese are not used to a, a financial crisis that hits the banking sector. Lebanese are raised to believe that their banking sector is the best banking sector in the region. And in fact, it is the engine of the economy. Uh, we are, what we are witnessing today is a, a, a crisis that has not hit one or two banks. It has hit the whole banking sector. And so one of the suggestions by the cabinet is for this 9 billion is the equity of banks. It, it, it was 21 billion, went down to 9 billion as a result of the devaluation of the currency, that it would be wiped out, which means that banks have to recapitalize themselves. In the process, what we are witnessing is three generations being wiped out. My parents' generations, those between them and me, and my generation, who have found all their uh, savings lost. So you can imagine somebody in their 60s or 70s who have just retired, 60s, middle 60s, 64, and who thought that they could enjoy a retirement by living off the interest of the money they've saved in the banks, and they simply have no access to this money. If their children don't send them uh, money from outside, they will not be able to afford medication. And in fact, the last, the last issue that people were talking about in Lebanon just before I left is that now insurance companies insist on getting paid in fresh dollars. Fresh dollars means cash dollars. That is, uh, they don't want to be paid by checks, what we call in Lebanon, lollars, which is Lebanese uh, dollars. Yeah, Lebanese dollars, that is dollars in the banks. Uh, according to the government uh, plan, uh, they want to save all accounts that are below $100,000. And so in the whole banking sector today, they estimate that there is around $104 billion in 2.4 million accounts. This has come down from around 130 in 2019, uh, mainly as a result of Lebanese buying real estate to uh, save their wealth, if you like. So there's around $104 billion in the banking system and 2.4 million bank accounts. The government plan is to save around 2.1 million accounts, which, which make up around 87.8, or if you like, 90% of deposits. All of these are around $34 billion. So the government plan today, as we speak, is to find a way to pay $34 billion, which would mean paying around 90% of deposits. The rest, the balance of the 104, is uh, in, in only 12% of the remaining accounts. These constitute $65 billion. So this gives you an idea of the concentration of wealth in, in the country. Half of this 65 is in only 5,000 accounts. That is less than 0.1% of the population. Now, this is the, exactly the kind of result you get from the policy of debt and financing of the debt through high interest rates and giving high interest in the banks to lure capital inflows, dollar inflows. Only 5,000 accounts control around 30 billion. So, so, so now the argument is what you, do you do with these? Do you do a bail-in? Do you do a haircut? And the fear among some of the banks is that, well, if you do a bail-in, then you change the sociology of the banking sector, which is traditionally in Lebanon considered to be a Christian uh, preserve, if you like. This is really the remnants of the 
old financial uh, bourgeoisie that created the banking sector. Of course, the banks have their own theory. They want the sale or the management of state assets to finance uh, a, a scheme that over many, many, many decades tries to pay back the money for the depositors. And there is a lot of anger in the country over these choices. But of course, these choices and whatever happens will decide what kind of Lebanon we have in the future. Now, the second crisis, do I still have time? Okay, give me two minutes. Okay, the second crisis is the crisis of the political system, the sectarian political system that was put together after 90. In many ways, the October protest demonstrated this crisis, that a lot of people are really not happy with the political system. Through violence, through the $21 billion that I spoke about, uh, through sectarian demonization, the sectarian political parties were able to reorganize their own constituencies. And in fact, in the last elections, we saw that uh, a lot of these sectarian parties still have followers. Uh, Now, nobody wants to claim victory in the parliamentary elections for obvious reasons. Nobody wants to claim ownership of the mess we are uh, living in. The problem with the fact that we now have uh, no clear majority uh, in the parliament is that Uh, this really may create the kind of immobilism of the political system uh, that we witnessed in the late 1960s. That is a a political system that become immobilized. Uh, The opposition, uh, independent MPs, uh, want to act as a united front, but around 14 MPs or 15 MPs that were elected to represent the Thawra, the protest, the revolution, really span the spectrum from the right to the left when it comes to fiscal and economic policies. The geopolitical bargain that created the Taif Accord and hence post-war Lebanon doesn't exist anymore. Uh, What kind of geopolitical bargain might happen in the region that may be translated domestically in Lebanon is anybody's guess. Who will play the, the role of the new Syria? What is the price of Hezbollah's uh, demobilization weapons? Uh, some in Lebanon are talking about a reconfiguration of the sectarian balance of power, that is, giving the Shia sect the kind of important positions that are held by the Maronite sect today, for example, the commander of the army or doing some kind of rotation. This is very controversial. This is happening in the context of calls for decentralization, which really echo calls for not really decentralization, but divorce in Lebanon, if you like, between the communities. And this, is, this has always been the game of the sectarian parties. When you want to take the discussion to socioeconomic issues, they take it to sectarian issues, as if the problem is sectarian and not socioeconomic. I'll end with this. Three possible uh, future scenarios. The best scenario would be a a geopolitical agreement, particularly between the big players in the region, the US, Iran, orchestrated by the French, that would lead to the election of a president who could play the role of the the role Fouad Shahab played in the 1950s and, and early 60s. The, the, the name that comes to mind these days is the commander of the army. And so a geopolitical agreement to stabilize the country would open the way for the election of somebody who can undertake the kind of real reforms that would stabilize the socioeconomic situation and start building the economy in a meaningful way. On the other hand, the worst scenario is a, a, a continu- continued freefall uh, we see continued uh, uh, the ending of all kinds of services, electricity, medical, what have you, and this creates a kind of situation where we go back to the logic of the civil war and every sectarian group, every sectarian party controls its own region, so kind of federalism of violence. The third scenario 
is some, something in between the two, a kind of a normalization of the crisis, muddling through for a long period until BDL, the central bank, runs out of dollars. So one thing for sure is that we are witnessing the end of the Lebanon of the last 30 years. What seems to be emerging is something very frightening. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, uh, Basil. As I indicated, you did go a little bit over time, but you did so with style and not Thank the least with, with content. Thanks a lot for a very interesting presentation. Rania, would you join us? Uh, you gave me a very uh, difficult job because I agree with uh, all you said. <laughs> and so I really liked your presentation. I, I thought that the... Um, post-type uh, analysis was uh, good, and also the, uh, the, uh, the political economic take, take which you took all the way through. I loved your ending, and I think, just to wrap up things, I think uh, Lebanon is so flexible that they will go for the worst, for the middle, mm -hmm. and the best scenario altogether. This is this is my 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 understanding of my people because uh, what is happening is really uh, a, a big change. But and I will maybe be a pessimistic optimist. I think the Lebanese state has been a myth for much more than 1989, uh, for even longer than 1943, because you mentioned the post-war. Uh, period, which is uh, the civil war from 1975 to 1990, and then in your second crisis, you you talked about the post uh, war, which I think you mean the Second World War. I think the most important war in Lebanon to understand today is the First World War, to be frank. And I will really take the political historian approach and to put geography as important factor as economy, because the two go together. I don't know if you've been uh, familiar with uh, Babylon uh, Berlin, the, the, net, the, the fabulous. I think Lebanon is, you know, like Babylon Beirut. Did you see this fascinating picture of the floating um, papers in the bank in Berlin? When I saw that series, I really think that Lebanon and the political economy of Lebanon is very much like Berlin in the middle uh, First World War. I think we are seeing the result of a long period of politics of mass violence, which we have not seen. I mean, we have seen fractures uh, many periods of time, of course, in the civil war in 1975 until 1990. But I think the Lebanese have not taken up um, uh, the, the repercussions of a civil war, which is devastating. So what we see today is actually the repercussion of things which have not been spoken. They are being seen much more. I think that it is so much more visible how much uh, people lost their, um, their, their, their income in the 1990s. I mean, I, I still have friends who lost their shops in, uh, in, in you know, I still talk with people who remember that they lost uh, their living, con you know, the, the mm -hmm. income in the civil war. So I think that uh, the Lebanese are extremely fascinatingly creative. They will survive. You survived. I survived. Many people survived. And you said that the, the word, the rentier economy of Lebanon is, you know, it's, it's, it's so powerful, this rentier economy, that maybe Lebanon will become like in Norway, we are, many of us have hitta. Hitta is cottage. <laughs> Which you really send money when you go to, uh, to somewhere, like, you know, Doha and, you know, half my family is in the Gulf. The other half is in West Africa. And I was fascinated when you told me that you were born in Sierra Leone. 
my mother was born in Lagos in 1943. So I really have to remind you, Lebanon is a unique place on earth, but it is an interesting place to study if you know your history. And your history has to start before the Second World War. It has to start with the myth of the Lebanese state, which is 101 years old. Uh, and it started. this myth started in 1920. And, and I think we are living the Babylon, Beirut kind of transformation. And 100 years, you know, historians, they laugh 100 years is nothing. I now agree with them. <laughs> I really agree with them because what we are seeing is the repercussion of the, of the agreements made uh, during 1943, but those agreements were not made in 1943 because we know that the unwritten pact, but, but, uh, but, but they were made with, and I really wanted to show a map, it was not possible, but Lebanon, if you see it, Lebanon was in 1920 half its size. It was constituted only by Mount Lebanon, and then they added Tripoli, troubled place. You know, Tina God should be here. She's writing a book on this fascinating place, Tripoli, in the North Lebanon. And they added also the place where my mother comes from, the South Lebanon. So you got this double, uh, the double size of the Lebanese state, which was made in 1920, uh, which uh, at the time somebody says, yes, we are trying to square the circle. <laughs> you know, to square the circle. This is what we are trying to do now. And I like your model through. The Lebanese are extreme, really fascinating uh, uh, politicians, people, also people. We muddle through in, in, in politics, in life, trying to make ends meet. Perhaps, perhaps the best survival strategy the Lebanese have is to survive. <laughs> I mean, I, I think me and you are examples of that because we are helping to keep the, the family up. Uh, with money coming from outside. Of course, I am talking from a middle-class perspective for people who have education, and this is the second survival kit. I don't think anybody in the world has such a good education system as the Lebanese who put like three-quarters of their income into educating their children. People really put money in education. Perhaps the Lebanese are the what I think of the nomadic Indians, I know I see Indians, I'm not talking about the SA, I'm talking about the East African Indians who are you know, mm. all around the world. I think we are very much the same, the Lebanese, the migrant identity. They were is... partners in Lagos. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And this is, I was, you know, this put me, this, this, this thing that you told me, yes, I was born in Sierra Leone, but I went back when I was four years old. That was the same with my mother. She was born in Lagos, but she went back when she was two years old. But her b older brothers continued, and he knew my uncle. I was like, what? You know Khal Hussein? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Lebanese know each other. <laughs> so I will not be much more, and I have uh, sort of bring, brought down the history and with full force, uh, and I will say more after. But I really want to bring in the histor uh, history to understand today's problems. Thanks a lot, Rania. Very, very interesting. Um, I promised the audience that there will be an opportunity to ask questions, and we have only uh, less than five minutes to go. So I'll, um, to stand by my commitment, have to open up for questions now. Um, and then we'll, we'll take a couple of questions and then leave it back to you here in the panel. And that would also be your concluding remarks. We'd love to go on for another day, but uh, the idea of this is to... Uh, respect people's time and be compact. So who wants to ask anything? Uh, if Edward O'Donnell from the United States. I teach at Arizona State University. Uh, and thank you. A very interesting presentation. Could I ask you to project forward a little bit more? You mentioned the, the U.S. and Iran and France as possible bringing together the best scenario. How, how would you see that playing out? And what about other actors in the region? Certainly Israel, uh, UK, Europeans, uh, who, how, how would you bring together all the, the interest parties and who has credibility in Lebanon? Uh, is it somewhere in the United Nations system? I mean, we know the IMF would have certain views and, and so on, but 
how would you pull that coalition together that might lead Lebanon toward a, a better, you know, election of a president who might institute reforms? Thank you. Hello, my name is Mona Varnes. I'm from Norwegian People's Aid. Uh, we work with and we have uh, talked to different organizations and partners that we work with, and they um, express a breath of positivity with the elections now, with new uh, voices in Parliament. If you could uh, reflect a little bit about that, and thank you for an excellent uh, presentation. Okay, thank you. Um, we'll have, bring that back to the panel, so please, and, and be short, because we're sure. uh, basically run, run out of time. <laughs> On the first question... Up until 2011, Lebanon was always a playground for geopolitical battles. Once the war in Syria starts, you have other playgrounds, Syria, Yemen, other places. The idea now is that if there is, a th if there is an agreement between the U.S. and Iran on the nuclear issue and an agreement on Syria, the reconstruction of Syria and the stabilization of Syria, then that would really translate into some kind of agreement between the big play regional players and the international players on Lebanon. So in a sense, stabilize Lebanon, bring a new president, uh, and probably outsource the, this process to the French who can talk with everyone. They can talk with the Iranians, they can talk with the Syrians, they can talk with the Americans and so on. That's really the best scenario. On your question, yes, there is, a, there, there is that expectation. that There, there was this uh, happiness, if you like, that 14, at least 14 MPs were elected from outside the sectarian political parties. Uh, having said that, uh, the, the sectarian political parties, when they want to act in concert, they can control parliament. The other thing is that these 14 MPs have yet to declare themselves a bloc. And I think they haven't because there are big differences among them on a range of issues, from Hezbollah's weapons, how you deal with it, to how you deal with the financial crisis. Thank you. Rania. Um, you know, my presence here is very much to point out the structural problems. And I think uh, uh, what you brought in with, um, I think you used the word capitalization of the economy. I think uh, um, if we think about the post-2008 uh, financial crisis and how the world has muddled through since, I think Lebanon is going to follow that uh, scenario. They will muddle through through something which the Lebanese know very, very much, which is money. Uh, so, so I think uh, uh, I, I am very pessimistic of non-sectarian political blocs, I'm sorry to say, because the structure of the Lebanese states is so much soaked into sectarian belonging, uh, because you cannot certainly be only a Lebanese. You always have to be a Shia Lebanese, a Sunni Lebanese, a Maronite Lebanese. So I'm really pessimistic about a non-sectarian political bloc. Uh, and you, you said why, uh, some of the reasons. They cannot manage to be uh, um, agree on some, uh, some kind of uh, common grounds. I think it's the same like in Syria. Many people are against Bashar al-Assad, but he continues. Although, because the, the opposition cannot agree on what to agree upon. I, I think really the, those two republics have, are twin republics. They, re, they resemble each other very much because they cannot uh, agree on, on one common ground. So I, I think, uh, given that the oppositional forces will not be able to agree, I'm sorry to say, although I really would have liked to see that, uh, then uh, the money talk uh, will go on, and the Lebanese know money. Uh, and they have extreme good contacts with the Gulf, which is actually, if you if you really want to understand the Arab revolts and the repercussions of the Arab revolts, it is that uh, what we have uh, now in the Middle East uh, is the Gulf uh, Gulfization of Arab politics. And this is Lebanon is one out of many other kind of changes that have been made. So so the Gulf money and the Lebanese banking system, they understand each other in a way. Uh, so so this is the way the Lebanese state will muddle through 
a, a terrible financial crisis, which has been going on for three years. We'll be coming back and holding into you to account on that prediction, <laughs> Rania. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot to Basil Salouh for uh, a very fine analysis, very illuminating, uh, different, uh, and extremely useful for understanding what happens in uh, in Lebanon. And thanks a lot to, to Rania for adding a good bit of uh, history and family relations to the mix, amongst other things, I should say. And thanks a lot also to the audience for turning up this morning and for following so uh, focusedly. Uh, we'll be back with new Middle East breakfast here at Prio. In fact, we have one next week on the 7th with uh, Christian Coates Ulriksen as the main attraction. He's a leading authority on Gulf politics. So uh, if you have any interest in, for example, the last comment that Ronja just made about the centrality, <laughs> centrality of what happens in the Gulf to what happens elsewhere in the Middle East, do come and listen to, uh, to Christian. A week after that, we have an event with uh, Gary Burton, on as the main attraction, there are others, um, on the role of China in the Middle East. And this is one of the big uh, puzzles, at least in my understanding, of what happens geopolitically in the Middle East. So I think that's also going to be very worthwhile. That are our main plans at uh, this side of the summer. But we look forward to have you back. And thanks again for turning up this morning. If you want to hang out and have another sandwich or anything, uh, you are most welcome to. Thank you.